Thank you so much for joining me on Teach Me How to Money. Today we have a great guest. We have Dan Primack. He's the business editor at Axios, and he's the author of the Pro Rata newsletter and podcast covering deals and dealmakers. And he was previously a senior editor at Fortune. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So uh, I'm really glad you're here um, because one of the things that we try to do at Stash um, and what I try to do at Stash Learn is to get people comfortable with reading business news and starting to understand what's in it and how they can learn about the world around them and how money, money affects everything we do. Yeah, I am I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, it, it's exciting for me and, and for us at Axios, our kind of our, our motto is getting people smarter, faster. And, and a piece of that is bringing business news not only to business professionals, but kind of to the markets at large and, and to folks at large who maybe invest or maybe think about investing. That's great. And we're a big fan of your newsletter over here. I just wanted you to know that. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you. It's a, it's a labor of love. <laughs> Emphasis on labor. I hear that. <laughs> um, so real quick, um, how did you get started being a business reporter? Uh, the short story is I followed a girl to New York, uh, and, and I needed a job. Uh, basically, so it was right before the dot-com crash, so the summer of 1999. Uh, I was I had kind of run a community newspaper in Boston, so I, I wanted to be a journalist. Um, but again, I, I truly did. I, I followed a girl to New York. She was working at NBC, and I needed a job to pay for the ridiculously expensive apartment uh, in Midtown, but which had a shower stall literally in the kitchen and no real bathroom. Of course. Uh, so, I, so, yeah, so I applied for jobs uh, and a lot of journalism jobs. And I got an interview for a business writing one. I had no experience. There was a newsstand on the first floor of the building in Midtown. I grabbed a copy of Barron's, the print copy of Barron's. Of course. On my way up to the interview, I learned or, or kind of saw a couple terms. I didn't know what they meant, but I figured I could work them into conversation uh, based on the context in Barron's and I uh, got the job. That's amazing. And I think that's really inspiring too. that, how you just, you didn't have a background. You didn't grow up, you know, wearing a monocle and, you know, reading the Wall no. Street Journal. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, to me in the end, I, I think a lot of journalism is, you know, th there's kind of either it's there's winners and losers or, or there's a big event that happened and there's a story behind it. And that's probably true, whether it's business or politics or sports or entertainment. And so I, I think there's some commonality for when you're a journalist to, to all of those things. It, it's just the jargon's a little bit different and there's kind of a different learning curve for each thing. So what does a business reporter do? talks on the phone an awful lot or goes out for drinks and lunches an awful lot. I mean, my, my job's a little bit different than most. So I run a new, write a newsletter every single morning and then do a podcast right after that. So my mornings are mostly tied to my desk. So I haven't had a breakfast meeting probably in about 15 years. Uh, but most of what business reporters are trying to do is learn about what is happening either in companies or in markets, depending on how niche you are, whether you're a general business reporter who's just covering that the Dow went up or down that day, or whether you're in a really specialized sector like, you know, gold futures or, you know, a certain type of real estate. And you're really trying, I think, to do two things. One, you're trying to talk to the people who work within that business or within that market to help them do their jobs better or to be more informed about what it is they do. And then you're trying to talk to a much broader audience to explain to them why what you're writing about maybe impacts them or impacts somebody they know or impacts the economy at large that we all live in. So you want to write a story about something. How do you get your information? Where do you start? 
Uh, obviously, depending on what it is. Uh, generally, I start by trying to talk to the people who either are involved in the situation or should know somebody involved in the situation. And, you know, hopefully, you know, if I've been doing this long enough, I know some people actually involved so I can just call them up or, or send them a text message. But there's also a lot of cold calling. And, and at this point, that's phone calls. That's emails. Uh, Twitter DM is fantastic, mainly because with Twitter, you know when somebody is actually online. So, like, if, if you send an email and you don't get a response, you never know for sure if somebody actually read it. Um, but with Twitter, if somebody tweets something and you send them a message immediately and they don't <laughs> reply to you, you know they're just ignoring you. And that's a helpful thing to know. That is definitely a helpful thing to know. So tell me about some of the stories that you covered early on that really cemented your interest in business news. Oh, goodness. Early on. So, I mean, the, the big one, I mean, really early on was the dot-com crash. So I, I was in New York City. Uh, again, I, I started I, – my first business writing job was covering private debt for uh, for a little newsletter. And, and the way news print newsletters and finance used to work was uh, the theory was the uglier – physically, the uglier the <laughs> newsletter was, the more important it was considered to be. So, for example, there was something called gold sheets, which was literally printed on gold paper. Wow. But that thing was a big deal. Uh, I wrote something called the private placement letter, uh, which was – was green and awful and then switched to one that was purple and awful. But um, but so in my early days, the, the first thing was the dot-com crash. And it was fascinating to watch all of this new wealth and new excitement and all these rooftop parties just end almost overnight. Uh, it ended so quickly. So that was the first one. But I mean, over the years, I, I think the most interesting ones, you know, reporters get a reputation for caring more about bad news than good news. But the reality is the bad news is usually far more interesting because it includes – you know, far more accusations and, and retribution, et cetera. So kind of anytime there's been a, a good fraud scandal or, or something like that, th those are always the most fun to cover. And what's been your favorite story to cover? Oh, my favorite ever. I, I think my favorite ever might be, so this is a fraud story. There was a venture capitalist in Connecticut who was stealing from his firm, but the way he was doing it was pretty novel. Th these venture capital partnerships are usually pretty small and there's usually a, a lot of trust. It's, you know, five people around a table, men and women around the table, and they have make decisions. And somebody will say, look, there's this company I want to invest in. Here's the argument for investing in it. And they want $15 million, for example. Sure. And everybody makes, you know, and if the rest of the partners vote yes, then the company gets wired $15 million. But this guy was getting them to vote yes on companies that were only asking for $5 million. And then he was pocketing the other 10, for example. And he did this over and over again. And when he finally got caught, he, uh, he fled quickly to India, uh, which is, he had a dual uh, citizenship, uh, leaving his wife and family behind because he's a terrible person. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. but this, this was a, it was a fascinating story because he was, he was a successful investor. He should have been making plenty of money. So it's not like he was on hard times. And he absolutely defrauded a very small group of partners. And, it, and for years, they didn't realize it. And it ultimately destroyed the firm. And it was a reputable firm. That is a great story. I, it's very funny how, you know, people are always obsessed with reading about, you know, grifts and financial crime. There's something so fascinating about, you know, reading about people trying to outsmart other people. But often they do get caught. They often get caught. And I, I think one of the reasons that it sometimes takes a while is that, that a lot of business really does rely on trust. So I said that that venture capital thing, but I'll, I'll give another example. There was a company years ago called Canopy Financial. And, and if I'm right about this, they were based in Chicago. And the idea was basically that they were helping employees have health savings accounts, right? So you would basically put a bunch, you know, part of your paycheck with this company called Canopy and they were building a health savings account for you. But it turned out that Canopy was basically stealing from those accounts. And if you would ever 
actually needed it, there wouldn't have been any money there. But one of the reasons they were able to keep raising venture capital money and private equity money was that when the investment firms went to do reference calls, they gave them a bogus number and somebody picked up and gave bogus information. Oh it, it was goodness. a scam. They they also sent them fo- phony financial reports or phony audits by cr- getting a piece of KPMG letterhead, copying it, literally, you know, an old copier, cut and paste, and then putting bogus numbers underneath it. And to be honest, nobody ever thinks to then call KPMG to make sure that the audit that they're looking at, that the numbers they're looking at, are the real ones. They see KPMG letterhead, that's good enough. And KPMG, is, it's a big accounting firm. It's a big accounting firm, and they were not doing these audits. Exactly. Oh, my goodness. That's, that's amazing. Do you think that these kind of scams are harder to do now than they were in the old days? No, I, I don't. I mean, you. no, I don't. Not at all. Uh, they, they continue to happen, I, I think, probably with the rise of not just cryptocurrency, but these so-called ICOs, these initial coin offerings where people are creating digital Bitcoin-like tokens and then sell it, you know, selling a ton of them, uh, almost like an IPO is on a stock market. You've already seen a bunch of scams related to that and the SEC cracking down. No, I, I, think, I think that there are always more frauds than there are regulators or authorities to try to catch them. So has covering all these things over the years, has it affected the way you look at business? Like, do you think you have a better eye for a scam right away? I would like to think so, but I know I don't. I, I mean, honestly, <laughs> I, I, would li- I would like to think so, but I guarantee I have written about something wide-eyed and optimistic and isn't this amazing, probably in the last like three months, that in a couple of years from now, there's going to be a giant story you know, that, that it was vaporware and it didn't exist in the first place, that there was no there there. <laughs> One problem as being a business reporter is you just like, you know, I, I said there's a lot of trust in business. There's a, there is some trust in being a business reporter, particularly I, I focus a lot on startups and you you have to be skeptical about claims people make. But these are often privately held companies, so there's not third-party verification of things. And what people are often talking about is what they're trying to build, not what they have built. And, and, and they are legitimately trying to build these things. The question then becomes, do they really have the technical expertise? Do they really have the chops to pull it off? And, and you often don't really know until they've either succeeded or failed. I think that's a great example of that. And as the one everyone talks about is the Theranos example. Sure. How uh, Elizabeth Holmes, for people who don't know, she started a company, raised millions and millions and millions of dollars based on a great sales pitch that she was able to get all this data about a person's health from a single drop of blood. And everyone wrote about it because everyone just kind of followed the fever. Yeah. And look, and I was at Fortune magazine at the time when we put her on the cover. I think we were the first people to put her on the cover, which uh, is something I I can tell you everybody involved with uh, sincerely regrets. And there was a long how it happened to sort of piece the fortune wrote afterwards. Uh, But you're right. And and look, there's a great book about her and Theranos called Bad Blood that John Carreyou published maybe about three or four months ago. It's it's a great book. It's a great book. It is. And there's going to be a movie. Jennifer Lawrence is going to be Elizabeth Holmes. (laughs) Of course. And and yeah, look, it was a – then the thing about Theranos is Theranos – wasn't necessarily a well-meaning fraud. At the very beginning, Holmes really did think she could build this thing. But very quickly, it became very obvious she couldn't. And she lied. She lied to investors. She lied internally to employees. She lied to regulators. And and she and her partner, literally boyfriend at the time and president of the company, it was pure fraud. They lied to everybody and they did it you know, there's the whole thing about the bigger the lie you tell, the more likely people are to believe it. And that's clearly what she followed. And, and she believed she could maybe just will this thing into existence, which which couldn't be done. 
So what do you, so just to change tax a little bit, if someone sure. has never read financial news before and they were just like you in the lobby grabbing a, a, a Barron's, how would you suggest they get started to really begin to understand the financial world around them? I think, I think the first thing you have to do is to understand why you want, you know, are you looking to become an investor? Are you just somebody who's interested? I, I think the latter one, you know, the investor is, is a little trickier, but to just be knowledgeable about business and finance, I, I think A, is extremely important today in the sense of it, it used to be that there were business writers and political writers and tech writers, and these were all separate things and, and separate media coverage. And, and today, they really have merged. I mean, for example, take something like tariffs and the trade war with China. Is that a politics story? Is that a business story? It's, it's kind of a tech story because it's theoretically sure. about intellectual property rights, et cetera, in China. So it's all those things. So A, I think it's extremely important. And then B, I think the answer is, honestly, th this is so cliche, pick up the Wall Street Journal and just read the thing for a couple of weeks. Um, because, you know, it, I mean, read Axios because I think we're going to give you the, the most pertinent information. But if, if to, to kind of boil the ocean, you know, read the front page. Just don't have to buy it. Just, you know, grab it at Starbucks and read it while you're waiting for your latte and, you know, for a couple of weeks. And you'll get a pretty decent sense of the overview of, of what's going on. I think that's a great start. You know, at Stash, you know, we try to de-jargonify the news. We, we just want people to just not be afraid when they see a financial news story and be like, oh, that's just for rich people. That's like Wall Street people news. Yeah. And I mean, look, some is right. I mean, there, there clearly is some financial news that is just for rich people and Wall Street news, but most of it's not. Most of it in some way is going to maybe not directly impact you, but but impact you as directly as some political news you might read. You know, for sure. every Trump story you read, most of those things don't really impact your day to day life. Uh, they might kind of eventually indirectly in aggregate. And, and that's kind of how business news is, again, unless it's, you know, about something about a company you either own stock in or that you work for or that your friends work for. Uh, but in general, it, it's part of, you know, these companies and how they succeed or how they fail, their inventions, that, that stuff, you know, propels or harms the overall economy. And, and that eventually affects us all. Absolutely. And, and taxes definitely affect sure. the world around us. That was a story that a lot of people had trouble wrapping their heads around last year. And with good reason, it was a complicated thing. It was extremely complicated. And we and you and there's a bunch of publications out there, Vox is pretty good at it too, of trying to break these things down and in a and I don't mean necessarily in layman's terms per se, but but to to explain why it matters to individuals and and why it's not you know, you, you look at the tax bill, it was whatever, seven, eight hundred pages that it almost no one can actually read the actual legislation. It's impossible to understand what it means. But there are a lot of good resources for, for figuring out what it means to you, whether you're somebody in the Northeast who suddenly isn't going to have a property tax deduction anymore, or whether you're somebody who's going to be getting more money in their paycheck every month. Or if you're a freelancer, it's going to really impact you. Absolutely. Absolutely. So how do analysts, how do they forecast what's going to happen? I mean, we know they don't have crystal balls, or do they? But how can no, we trust and what analysts are going to say when the reporter reports it, um, when, they, when they get the reports from the analyst? Don't. Don't believe it. Uh, they have no idea. I mean, they, uh, let me rephrase. They don't have no idea. They're making, they're making educated guesses. I think they would admit they are making educated guesses. I, I would say if there is a true consensus, you know, if 10 out of 10 analysts all say the same thing, that a company is going to, you know, increase this or decrease this, then, then you should probably believe there's a pretty good chance that's going to happen. But in general, you know, the, the thing that 
always bothers me when earnings reports come out. There, there's two sorts of earnings guidance or, or what, how a company is going to do next quarter or next year. One is guidance the company itself says, and that's important if a company makes that or misses that because that suggests the company really is on top of what's happening in its business or it's not. Sure. But when you see a story that says, you know, company X uh, missed analyst guidance by two cents per share and the stock goes down, my thought on that is always – why is the company being damaged because the bank analysts were wrong? Why isn't the bank stock going down? The, the, the company didn't get it wrong. They didn't tell you they were going to do better. The banks screwed it up. The banks should get their shares hit. So I, I wouldn't pay too much attention to, to Wall Street analysts from that perspective. So on Stash, we promote long-term you know, long trading. We don't do short selling. We don't do day trading. So it's, it's tough because we want people to – you know, to be aware of the financial world around them. But at the same time, we don't want them to overreact to chatter and to overreact to the day-to-day news. What is some advice you would give to someone who wants to stay informed but doesn't want to have a daily freakout? I I think maybe – hand your password to your brokerage account to to a friend and ask them to change it for you and only give it to you in case, you know, kind of break, you know, break glass in case of emergency. But in general, yeah, I, I think it's always good to be informed, but to to be informed in the sense of what you're trying to get is an aggregate, right? You're you're not trying, again, if unless you're somebody who is day trading, if you're investing for the long term, it's good to know what's happening because that can kind of inform you as to trends generally. And, and I don't think you necessarily are going to trade specifically because you're thinking, oh, this happened and that happened. But it kind of just creates a reservoir of information for you that when you do decide to buy a stock or maybe sell a stock, that's somewhere in the back of your head that these macro trends perhaps are happening. So have you ever had a situation where a story you've covered or a beat that you've had has influenced the way that you invest? No, because I don't invest, intentionally don't invest. Uh, Partially because I think I shouldn't just because I cover. I'm not in a situation where there's a certain bucket of companies I cover and then, you know, a broad universe where I don't. I theoretically can cover every company. So I simply, I I don't invest. It's just not something I do. Is it a a conflict of interest? I think it could be, yeah. And it, it, you know, if if there's, I will say there are some stocks that I own, which I was, you know, given by my grandfather 30 years ago. And I, I simply just don't buy or sell them. They just sit somewhere and, and, you know, hopefully my kid will inherit them. But in general, yeah, look, I, you know, when I wake up, one of the things I love about being a reporter is most mornings when I wake up, I don't know what I'm going to spend my day working on. You know, I know I'm probably gonna be on my computer and on my phone, but I don't know what I'm going to actually be doing. And what I could actually be doing might be covering one of a thousand companies or writing about one of a thousand companies. And if I did have stock in it, I, I don't think it would actually impact what I write or don't write, but it would certainly open me to accusations of conflict. And, and there's no reason to put myself in that position. I've got, a, I've got a 401k. That's good. And I don't pay attention to it. <laughs> so what do you think is a story that's happening right now that people aren't paying attention to, whether it's because there's so much noise happening politically? Uh, what, do you, what do you think people should know about? I think it actually is a political thing because there's so much noise, which is I think that, that that there seems to be a better chance than there was even a week ago, a month ago, that the Senate could flip. If that happens, that has big business implications. Now, I don't think the tax cuts are going to get you know reversed because I don't think Trump would sign them. But um, a colleague of mine, Jonathan Swan, wrote yesterday about how if the Democrats do win, and particularly win the Senate, you could finally see this big infrastructure bill come. And that's got huge business implications. Uh, for starters, it would probably be funded by debt because Trump – Trump likes debt. Um, but what you could be talking about is is huge investments in municipalities, in bridges, in roads, et cetera, which is obviously big for construction companies, et cetera, but, but could be a huge 
short-term, at least, stimulus to the economy could really affect uh, a lot of bottom lines for a lot of companies. So just to explain, what is this, because we're all very interested in the infrastructure bill here and why it's not being passed, um, you yep. know, what is, has been the holdup for people, just for people who are listening who aren't aware of the situation? Uh, the holdup has been, well, it's been a couple things. One, uh, the Trump administration decided not to prioritize it early in the administration. You know, you, you really only get about a year and a couple months uh, to get big legislation through before you have the midterms. And they worked on trying to repeal Obamacare and the tax cut. Those were the two big things they did. And they just simply didn't get to infrastructure. And one of the big problems was they could not come to an agreement on how to pay for it. You had folks within the White House, uh, the Gary Cohen side of things, who really wanted to leverage a lot of private dollars. This idea that, you know, for every 200 million private dollars, you could leverage $800 million in debt um, or vice versa. I'm sorry. For every couple hundred million in public dollars, you could get 800 million in private dollars. Uh, and then you have Democrats who think, no, we should just basically fund this with tax dollars and, and we can do this as debt. And honestly, the two sides just never really sat down to come to an agreement. And, and then as things got a little bit further in the political cycle, they just decided to table it all together. Yeah, it's been a tough time for people to be getting along and agreeing on things uh, regarding the economy. I think it's a, a pretty broad statement. It is, but this was the this was one of the few things. And look, the, the devil's in the details and how you pay for it. But but infrastructure spending, you know, bridges, roads, tunnels, airports, is one of the very few things that top level Republicans and Democrats and Trump all agreed on. And if it had been, you know, you've heard this about the Obama administration too, that they focused on the wrong thing first. If the Trump administration had focused on this early, it could have been a big win for everybody. Sure. That's definitely true. So this is something I wanted to close with. So there's a lot of media mistrust these days. People are always talking about fake news. People wonder, um, is what I'm reading, like, what is a fact? How can people who are listening to this uh, be sure that they're reading something from a good source? It's for starters, it's hard. I mean, there's you know Chrome extensions and things like that that are trying to you know, called NewsGuard, which is trying to just you know tell you whether it's a legitimate source or illegitimate. What, what I'd say in general is to find a you know particularly if it's business news, find a few sources and read them regularly and see if a they're being contradicted by others or if they're having to issue a lot of corrections. Uh, most most mainstream at least media organizations, if they screw something up, are going to issue a correction. They might issue it really small, but track it. See, see if they're coming. And if there's a lot of them, then that should be a concern to you. Uh, and if there's not, then, then things should probably be good. I, I do think there's a lot of intuition as a part of it. But I, for all the talk about the problems with quote-unquote mainstream news, I, and I understand that I'm part of that, I do believe mainstream news generally tries to get it right. That doesn't mean you always get it right. It means you're trying to get the story with the best available facts. Um, you know, again, we, you know, when I was at Fortune, we screwed up Theranos, absolutely screwed it up. Uh, but when we screwed it up, we issued a long explanation of why we screwed it up, how it happened, and with a major apology. I think most mainstream business news organizations are indeed trying to get it right. The, the only other thing I'd say is, particularly in business news, do pay attention to who's writing the story and not just the brand or the masthead. In other words, there are a bunch of business publications um, that, that allow a lot of contributors to write for their website. You want to make sure it's actually a staff writer or, or somebody tied to the magazine writing and not some third party because often that third party, particularly in business, is basically trying to, to pump up their own book. They're, they're trying to not necessarily sell you something, but are trying to spin you in a way that's advantageous for their business. That is, that's very important to know because you have to really look at the bottom and look at the bio and see what their vested interest is in explaining this point of view to you. 
Absolutely. And, and again, you know, going back to the investing thing, most business publications do have restrictions on what their reporters can and can't invest in. And if they are allowed to invest, almost always require a disclosure of that at the bottom. Uh, so, but again, I would go more trust the, trust the journalists who are actually employed by the publication rather than the third party that the publication is using to get some clicks. So my last question. Uh, where do you go to get your business news? Oh, goodness. I go everywhere. So my mornings, so I, so my newsletter, the pro rata newsletter, which comes out every morning at 10 a.m. Eastern, uh, it's, it, it's a collect, it's two things. It's a column up top and then it's a bunch of deal news, venture capital deals, mergers and acquisitions, private equity, et cetera. Uh, so I go everywhere. I read my competitors. So that's, uh, you know, New York Times deal book, um, my former shop at Fortune, something called the term sheet, which I created over there. Uh, but then for tech news, I'm reading things like tech meme and tech crunch, uh, for mainstream deal news and business news. I'm going to Reuters. Reuters does a, you know, they've got a huge newsroom. They do a great job. Bloomberg does the same. I think those are kind of probably my main sources. And then, and to be honest, Twitter, I'll say I I sit on Twitter constantly. (laughs) We're all guilty of that. (laughs) Yep. Well, it was such a pleasure talking to you. And if people want to learn more about you or if they want to subscribe to your newsletter, um, just get smarter about the world around them, how can they do that? Uh, a couple ways. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Dan Primack, P-R-I-M-A-C-K, or just sign up for the ProRata newsletter at si- – actually, at getprorata.axios.com. Well, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you for teaching us about the world of business journalism and how we can get confident reading it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Teach Me How to Money. Send us your questions at teachmehowtomoney at stashinvest.com, and we'll try to answer them on a future episode. If you like what you're hearing – leave us a review on the iTunes store, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Don't have Stash yet? Just go to stashinvest.com slash podcast, and you can get $5 to get you started on your investment journey. Stash, it's your money, simplified. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from Stash to the listener. Neither Stash nor any of its officers, directors, or employees makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of these statements or any of the information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Stash, and Stash is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of advice by Stash to the listener, nor to constitute such a person a client of Stash.